And so I created a program that was intended to find other stories to help demystify this surgery and what life would be like afterwards. And we started to find the most amazing stories that blew up this sort of restrictive lifestyle box that we thought our lives would be constrained within. That was Rolf Benershka, founder of the Grateful Patient Project, former San Diego Chargers kicker and NFL Man of the Year. You're listening to the Patient Access Podcast. I'm Susan Hepworth. Rolf, thank you so much for being here with us today. We're very excited to have you as our next guest on AFPA's Patient Access Podcast. Thanks, Susan. Excited to be here as well. So, Rolf, um, tell today's podcast listeners a little bit about yourself, maybe your time in the NFL, um, why it is that you're even on a podcast that's about patient access. Um, So just kind of give us a little bit of information about yourself. Yeah, so a little background. I was sort of a, a, a reluctant NFL player, interestingly. I was raised in sort of an academic medical family. My dad was a, a medical school professor. So I was born in Boston, lived there until I was five. He, he taught there at Harvard. Then he moved us to Dartmouth. He was recruited to Dartmouth to run the pathology department there. And so I grew up until I was 15 in New England. I was a skier, hockey player, tennis player, soccer player. Took advantage of all the seasonal sports. And then one day kind of without asking us kids, there were three of us, he announced at Christmas that we were moving to La Jolla, California, San Diego, because he was excited to join a new research team of scientists and take on a medical school teaching role at UC San Diego, brand new medical school. They were just inviting their second class. And so it was a a shock to us. I was 15 going into my 10th grade year. My brother was going into his senior year. My sister was going to be a ninth grader. We had friends, we were deeply involved in the sports that we played, and, and sort of without warning, we were uh, sort of uh, taken out of what we loved, our sort of uh, conservative and winger roots, if you will, to crazy California. And it was eye-opening to move here. Uh, out here in California, soccer's played in the winter. Back east, of course, soccer and football are both in the fall. And we started a soccer team. Interestingly, they didn't have a soccer team when I was out. This is 1970. And so we started one my junior year. We had six different nationalities. We had a bunch of us that had moved from the East Coast. And we had this very eclectic team that was really good. And it was interesting right around the time when soccer-style kicking was really taking off in football. And so one day after practice, a couple of the guys on the football team came up and said, have you guys ever you know, kicked a football? And and three of us kind of raised our hand. And, and for me, it was really the only footballs I'd ever kicked was walking home across the Dartmouth Athletic Fields in New Hampshire, kicking footballs with my buddies through the goalposts on their practice field. So, But I raised my hand. And, and the truth is, Susan, don't tell anybody, kicking football isn't that difficult if you can kick a soccer ball correctly. So <laughs> the ne- next thing we know, we're having a little competition. And I was sort of the last guy standing. And, but we, what I didn't, none of us realized was that the football coach was watching. And he came out to me afterwards and said, we'd love for you to kick footballs next year, your senior year. And at the time I was very hesitant. I was, I was small, I was 135, I was kind of just starting to grow. And, and, and anyway, I got talked into it and played my senior year. And, you know, we didn't have a very good team, but we had a lot of chances to kick. And as I mentioned, it was really, it's really, it's easy. And, and so afterwards, all of a sudden I got all of these 
scholarship opportunities to go to go to USC and San Diego State and Stanford and Cal and and I went to my dad. My dad was an immigrant. We didn't grow up with a television. Sports was something always we did for fun, but we were not NFL junkies by any means. Um, and I said, Dad, they want they want me to go to USC or to Stanford to kick footballs. What do you think? And he kind of looked at me sideways and said, Well, why, why would you do that? I mean, that's not why you go to college. And and the truth is, I didn't know if I was good or not. And, and I had a passion for wildlife. And my path, I thought, would take me to veterinary school and ultimately to work with endangered species. So I chose UC Davis, University of California Davis, and, and applied and got in there and never thought about football. Didn't know if they had a team or not. I was there a week and I get called out of the blue by the head football coach. And he basically says, you know, why, who, and I said, you know, who are you? And he goes, well, I'm the head football coach. And I go, why are you calling? He goes, well, I'm calling because I just got sort of berated on the phone by John Robinson, the coach of USC, suggesting we're paying players to come to Davis, which is <laughs> ludicrous because we're a Division II non-scholarship school. Um, and the coach goes to Coach Robinson, why would you say that? And he says, well, we recruited this kicker, and he chose Davis instead of USC. you got to be doing something illegal. And the, the Davis coach, Jim Soker, who became a great friend of mine, said, well, we didn't even sign a kicker, but what's his name? And he tracked me down and he talked me into playing football and he fundamentally changed my life. I would play four years at Davis, uh, ultimately played soccer as well, and then got drafted into the NFL, which when my father heard, he actually heard from a colleague back east, you know, the day I was drafted, you know, there was this, you know, Dr. B, we just heard Rolf was drafted, congratulations. And, you know, my father's end of the line was, drafted. I, I thought the war was over. Are they still drafting people? So we had this very sort of crazy beginning. And I ended up in San Diego and would play 10 years. But where this is relevant, Susan, is that I got sick in my second season. I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, finished that season, tried to come back and play my third season, uh, collapsed on a team plane, uh, four games into it. We just played New England. They landed the plane. I needed emergency surgery. They took out part of my colon. I had a second surgery six days later. And I woke up from that surgery 65 pounds below my playing weight with two ostomy bags on my side. And the doctors who worked on me telling my father, who was in that same hospital, that I likely wouldn't survive the night. And I... I probably shouldn't have. I was septic. I was, I was minutes, hours really from dying. And I, I, I think the Lord stepped in and then I got extraordinary medical care. And I was in the ICU for five and a half weeks. And then I lived. And then I was released to the care of my parents. And then I wondered why I lived. Because from my perspective, as a 24-year-old guy who loves sports of all kinds, I'm thinking... I'm never going to be able to do those things again. I have ostomy bags on my side. I was making my living as a professional athlete. I'm sure that was never going to happen. And I was 24, and I, I liked girls. And I'm going, that'll never happen either. Why didn't I just die? And I didn't die. And now we had to deal with it. And in the process of recovering, the short story is I was given a chance to play again and earned my job back and played seven more seasons. But now, because of what I had gone through, whenever, especially that first year back, whenever we would play in a 
in a visiting city, Denver, Dallas, uh, Seattle, Kansas City, there was a lot of attention on my illness and my recovery. And we would do a TV or a, a, a print uh, interview. And wherever those showed up, patients would read them and it would prompt some of them to write me. I would come back to the locker room the le- next week and there would literally be, Susan, 50 letters wow. in my locker. And it was always funny because it was always Rolf Benershka, mi- misspelled. I mean, who can spell Benershka? <laughs> Simply San Diego Chargers, and they didn't mind. And then the lockers, the, the, the letters were all the same. How can you play football with I'm trying with an ostomy? I'm trying to. And it was like a fill in the blank, right? Go to school, be a dad. Mm-hmm. And I learned that there subsequently were there 100,000 ostomies done a year. And every one of those is fundamentally life changing for the patient and their family. And everyone goes through alone. So I reached out to the manufacturer of the products that I was wearing. They were a brand new company, brand new product that allowed me to do all the things that I thought I couldn't do. I could swim, I could work out, I could ski, I could play hockey, tennis, and I'm now returning to football. It was crazy. And so I I went to them and said, we need to do something. And so I created a program that was intended to find other stories to help demystify this surgery and what life would be like afterwards. And we started to find the most amazing stories that blew up this sort of restrictive lifestyle box that we thought our lives would be constrained within, right? It would be difficult to travel, can't work out, you know, can't can't swim, you know, intimacy is gonna be hard. I mean, all of those things that you wonder about that you really don't know who to talk to, we exposed by the stories we told. We found people that became triathletes, professional golfers, um, firefighters, police officers. We, we found a guy that climbed Mount Everest wearing an ostomy appliance. Oh, wow. And as those stories started to be told, they had a huge impact on patients. It encouraged them. The specialty nurses that took care of us used those stories to encourage other patients. And all of a sudden, we did a lot to change what life was like for these patients. And that we probably shouldn't be categorized a medical supply, but rather a prosthetic. Because literally we can't live without these. Mm-hmm. And we were effective in changing the legislation. And that was sort of my first experience in the power and importance of patients engaging in our healthcare legislative system. And, and so here I am now, you know, 40, I was 1979 when I had my surgery. 1980 was when I returned. I played 10 years with the league. But ever since then, I was drawn to encouraging and inspiring and educating patients, particularly ostomy patients and patients who struggle with inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease and and ulcerative colitis. And then really built a company around developing programs to better support the pharmaceutical and medical device industry as they bring new products and new therapies to market. So that's a long-winded answer that explains sort of how we got here and why I'm just so passionate about engaging patients. Yeah. Um, So I want you next to tell us about something that you started a few years ago called the Grateful Patient Project. and I just kind of want you to give us a background about that because coming up on September 7th is kind of the marquee programming of 
the Grateful Patient Project, which will be Grateful Patient Day. And that's you know really part of why we're doing this podcast is because we want our listeners to know about the Grateful Patient Project and Grateful Patient Day on September sub. Uh, September 7th. So tell us a little bit about what is the Grateful Patient Project. So appreciate the chance to talk about this. I'm, I'm so excited about this. This is an opportunity for patients everywhere. And I think there are literally millions who are grateful, grateful for their physician, their nurse, their hospital, the drug they take, the device that allowed them to return to whatever it is they love to do. And it was really born out of a couple of things. First of all, I think we sort of have this desire to to say thank you to an industry that has returned us to life. And we don't often have that opportunity. We get discharged. We hardly see our surgeon again. We we may never see our, our nurse or, or, or doctor. And, and there's sort of this incompleteness to to our desire to to want to thank and, and, and share our gratefulness. So that's one. The second is, I think, what, what I have learned is that these grateful patients kind of sit on the sidelines and we watch this healthcare debate sort of fly over us, lobby over us, and all of these things that are written or, or talked about on television that don't necessarily sit right with us. So we understand that there are problems in the healthcare system. We understand that we're working through a very changing ecosystem. But right now, what appears to be happening is it's easy to shoot the pharmaceutical industry for the high prices that people feel they're paying. And when you really understand, again, the ecosystem, the distribution of of drugs, et cetera, you realize there are a lot of other players in there who are making money off this. There's misalignment. And ultimately, and maybe because of some bad actors in the pharmaceutical industry, that whole space is being tarnished and painted with a broad brush that has left, as polls say, about a third of patients actually trusting big pharma. Well, I don't think most of us feel that way. And I'll tell you that as a result of my surgeries, I needed 80 units of blood, ultimately discovered 10, 15 years later that I got hepatitis C from that bad blood and needed to go on three different year-long interferon-based daily injections along with an antiviral therapies that were very harsh. Had a, it started with a 20% success rate, then 40%, and then ultimately my, the third therapy that I went on had a 50% success rate if you could survive the side effects for a year. But ultimately, I was cured of hepatitis C because of that. Now that research has continued to go on and, and 20, literally 25 years after the virus, hepatitis C virus was identified, we have this elegant, all oral, no side effect, eight to 12 week cure, literally cure. You just take your medicine and you're cured. That wouldn't happen if innovation and research weren't allowed to prosper. So Grateful Patient Project has also morphed into an opportunity for the millions of us who are grateful to stand up and be involved in this healthcare debate and say, wait a minute, let's look at the end user. We expect these therapies to be there when we get sick, but they're not gonna be there if we do things that can inadvertently stifle research and innovation. So that's the other real motivation behind the Grateful Patient Project. 
That's that's great, Rolf, and I think it's an amazing an amazing project you've started. I mean, because it really is that platform for patients to be able to share their gratitude, whether that be for, as you mentioned, you know, the doctors and the nurses, the other therapists, um, family members, and other caregivers who really um, help them to overcome these challenges in their life. So, tell us specifically about what occurs each September seventh with Grateful Patient Day. Well, it's interesting. Um, this was actually, initi- I, I cannot take credit for this. This was initiated by uh, a couple of gals that work in my company and my wife, who, without telling me, uh, applied to the National Calendar Registry for a day called National Grateful Patients Day. And uh, three or four weeks after they applied, they got a letter back that said there were 30,000 applications for a day. We awarded 18 and we're gonna award you National Grateful Patients Day. And the day that that they had asked for was September 7th. And that was meaningful because that was the first day that I returned to play when I should have been dead. I should never have had the opportunity to play again given my, my ostomy appliances. And here I was playing again. It was a it was a sec. I got a second chance to live, a second chance to play, and and really, it's it's fundamentally changed my life. And so they selected that day. And so now, every September seventh, we celebrate National Grateful Patients Day, and we are ramping up all of the different activities that are going to take place on that day. We we are asking people to go to the the website gratefulpatient.org, uh, hashtag uh, Grateful Patient to share their story, to thank a physician, a, a, a hospital, a caregiver, a family member, a pharmaceutical company if they're on a medicine that, that, that treated them well. And we wanna collect those stories. We wanna be able to share them with physicians, with hospitals, and just having a moment to pause and reflect uh, and be grateful for what, where we live, the opportunity we have to get great healthcare, uh, for the research scientists that have been pushing along these therapies that we now take for granted, and really to um, just, I, I, I guess, reflect on on uh, the gratefulness of, of the chance to live again. Well, Rolf, I think that it's absolutely amazing, that Grateful Patient Project and the Grateful Patient Day um, that you started. You Uh, faced a lot of adversity in your life. You didn't let it bring you down. And instead, you have taken what you've learned and you are using it to improve the lives of other patients across the world who are are struggling. And then you're also using it to help to promote this attitude of gratitude, which I really think that, you know, given sort of today's society and where we are, it's actually something that's really missing and something that we really need. Um, is more of that attitude of gratitude. So we think this, the Grateful Patient Project and Grateful Patient Day, which is coming up quickly on September 7th, is awesome. And um, just again, for our listeners, if you go to social media, um, you can share your story using the hashtag Grateful Patient. On September 7th, you can also search for other stories to learn more about what's out there. And then also going to gratefulpatient.org. Um, there's also a place on that website that you can share your story as well. Um, so, Rolf, before we wrap up, we like to finish with a lightning round. So just a couple of uh, questions for you, maybe 10 or 15 seconds to answer each one. Um, so we'll just go right through these. Rolf, what is your favorite meal of all time? 
My favorite meal, oh, it's it's definitely Wiener Schnitzel. Um, I have sort of German roots, and remember as a young kid, my dad took us all back to meet cousins and relatives over there, and I remember sitting in Innsbruck, Austria, and eating this plate full of Wiener Schnitzel that my mom uh, made for us as kids, and, and it's my favorite meal of, of all time. Okay. I do a lot of these podcasts, and nobody has ever said Wiener Schnitzel before, so that is the first one for us, but I love that. Um, what's your favorite memory of your time in the NFL? The most memorable time was was several weeks after being released from the hospital in 1979. I got a call from the team asking if I could come to a game and watch a game. I could barely walk. My abdomen was still held together by wire sutures. I was 60 pounds below my playing weight. But I went to the stadium and was sitting in, in the, the owner's box, and the team heard I was there, and they asked me to come down to the locker room, and and they saw me for the first time in more than two months. I looked like a skeleton. But they got together, and they made me captain for the day, which meant I had to walk out to the middle of the field for coin toss. I could hardly walk that far. I'll get teary-eyed talking about it, but walking out to the middle of the field when they announced um, my name as one of the captains for the day, the stadium stood and, and cheered, and I, I remember it like it was yesterday, how much I was supported and cared for, and as a member of the Chargers, loved by the community, and it sustained me during my long recovery and gave me um, sort of the inspiration to keep fighting, so that is absolutely my all-time memory in my time in the NFL. That's amazing. And the last lightning round question is, what is the last book you read? Very good one. It's called The Second Mountain by Michael Brooks. I've just finished it. it it's such a powerful book about people that get knocked down in life. Well, Rolf, thank you so much for being the guest on today's Patient Ask Access podcast. Just to kind of recap, Grateful Patient Day this coming September 7th how our listeners can participate. Um, share your personal story using the hashtag GratefulPatient. You can also share your story on the website GratefulPatient.org. We want to amplify as many of these stories of gratitude as we possibly can. Um, so thank you so much, Rolf, for all you do on behalf of patients, and thank you for joining today's podcast. Thanks for having me, Susan. Really, really appreciate it. Mm-hmm.